0: find 1st Samuel in your Bible this morning and uh, we're going to read just a few verses of the first chapter. We're going to cover more than that this morning, Lord willing, but I want to just read those first eight verses of chapter 1. 1st Samuel chapter 1. After you found that, why don't you stand with me? Let's read it together. 1st Samuel 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramatham, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, uh, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penana, And Panana had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, ask that uh, you would help us today to uh, focus our hearts on you, to worship you, and to uh, learn from uh, this passage in the Old Testament, that we might uh, understand uh, about the power of prayer, that we might uh, know Uh, about your sovereign rule and how your providence works in our lives and lord we pray that uh, this morning as we get into your word that uh, your spirit might uh, teach us the truths that we need to know to please and honor you we thank you for this time of worship in jesus name amen a woman named hannah had reached the end of her limit this was the last straw Of course, this event happens every year, but there comes a time when the spirit of a person just snaps. The festive mood of this religious celebration only caused her to become more depressed. We look up, and suddenly she's gone. In the next scene, we find her at the tabernacle. Obviously, she wants to pray, which she might be able to do if it were not for the great heaving sobs coming from her heart. In one sense, Hannah has almost everything that a woman in Israel in 1100 B.C. could ask for. She has Elkanah, a husband of high social standing. He is a man of moderate wealth, a man with genuine affection for her, and one who is truly pious. Oh, but there's this serious problem. The problem was that though Hannah had Elkanah, she didn't really have him, she shared him with another woman. In fact, she shared him with an overly fertile, loud-mouthed thorn in the flesh. And we may remember that this is quite a scene here. We may wonder what this Domestic conflict has to do with the Kingdom of God and his plan of salvation, but we simply need to dive in here and see this event, of course, led to the birth of Samuel, who not only grew up to become the greatest one of the greatest prophets in Israel but also served as the last of its judges. to give some context here, we are now. 2,833 days from the creation of the world. We are 1,171 years. I, I said days. I should have said years. Uh, we are 1,171 years from the incarnation of Christ. And we are 418 years before the establishment of Rome. These are ancient times and things were much different then. In order for us to benefit from these accounts, we must cross the bridge back into that age and understand before we cross the bridge back to our day and time. The first section that we need to focus on in this study is 1 Samuel 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 10. And since these are large narrative sections, I'm not going to read all of that in this message. I'm assuming that you are reading this on your own. But I want to divide this first large section into four parts. The first thing that we see is a predicament among God's people. This predicament described in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, is not entirely new because there have been other examples of it in Scripture. Hannah was barren. She had no children. Yahweh had closed her womb. This was a very big deal in Israel in that day and time. Since the bearing of children was understood as a sign of God's blessing, the inability to bear children was seen as a sign of God's punishment. And although it would likely not have consoled Hannah, it is helpful for us to remember that she is not the first barren woman recorded in Scripture. In Genesis 11.30, we're told that Sarah was barren, she had no child, and this dark cloud really hung over her for nearly ten chapters in Genesis until God miraculously opened her womb and gave her a child in her old age. The mathematics of Genesis 25 indicate that Rebecca had no children for the first 20 years of her marriage to Isaac. And Genesis 29 details the soap opera turmoil that swirled around the barrenness of Rachel. In Judges 13, we read how God raised up mighty Samson from the fruitless womb of Manoah's wife. So this is not the first time this has occurred in Scripture. And it's interesting. Barren women seem to be a common way in which God raised up key figures in his redemptive history. I believe that is because he intends to show that he alone accomplishes his purposes and he does it against odds that seem humanly impossible. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and helplessness is no barrier to his mighty power. Indeed, our inability is often the foundation for his next act at any rate Hannah is among the fellowship of the barren it is frequently among this fellowship that Yahweh began a new chapter in the history of his people and that is exactly what he does here while the stigma of having no children was bad enough for Hannah there was something else that made this Much worse, Penana, the other wife, was constantly rubbing it in. Can't you just imagine how it must have been in that household? Children, children, gather around. Do you all have your food? Oh, dear me, there are so many of you. It is hard to keep track of you all. Oh, too bad Hannah doesn't have any children. God has been so gracious to me. I wonder what Hannah has done to bring this curse on herself. She must really be evil in God's sight. Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I mention to you that I'm pregnant again? Do you think you'll ever be pregnant? Probably not. You must really be a disappointment to God. Year after year, this kind of thing was going on. No doubt, Panana used this sort of abuse to make up for the fact that Hannah was Elkanah's favorite wife. As Dale Davis puts it, year after year it went on, baiting Hannah, irritating her, winding her up until the sobs broke out, goading her to complain, against god but the good news is in this case it drove her to god it drove her to the throne of yahweh and his all-loving presence to earnestly cry out to him which ultimately resulted in the birth of samuel by the way let's just note a couple of details about this text In verses 1 through 8 before we move to the next section notice verse 1 there was a certain man from ramathame zophim and uh, you see the rest of that verse there the place ramathame zophim is a double name the hebrew word ramathame means double heights the last part zophim can be rendered of the zophites which distinguishes Elkanah's Ramah from that in the territory of Benjamin. Now some have located this as the modern day site of Rintus about nine miles north of Lydda in the western hill country of Ephraim. But the traditional site is the New Testament town of Arimathea, about 15 miles west of Shiloh. Some have equated this rhema with the one located five miles north of Jerusalem, but I personally do not think this is correct because the text clearly tells us this was in the hill country of Ephraim, not in the territory of Benjamin. The name of this place can mean the two high places of the watchmen. It likely is represented by two contiguous hills, on which watchtowers were built, and this is where it got its name. But go back to verse 2 again, and he had two wives. The practice of polygamy in Scripture has raised many eyebrows. Polygamy has never been God's design, and it is significant that in every case of polygamy cited in Scripture, it created a great deal of domestic conflicts. One commentator wrote, in Israel, as in most of the ancient world, monogamy was generally practiced. Polygamy was not contrary to law or morals, but usually was not economically feasible. And the fact that Elkanah had two wives indicates that he must have been fairly well off. Polygamy appears to be acceptable at this point in the progressive revelation of the Old Testament, but there is no doubt it was never God's plan. And again, here, it causes much trouble. Well, verse 2 gives the names of Elkanah's two wives. Hannah means fixed or settled. Panana means jewel or pearl. Verse 3, now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. The tabernacle was located in Shiloh, and there was the Ark of the Covenant there. All the males were required, bound by law, to go up each year to the three national festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles. But this is the first time here that the title, Lord of Hosts, is mentioned in the Bible. This title is used much more prominently later by the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, which has led some to think that perhaps one of these was the editor of this book. One last detail. Look at verse 7. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, that she, that is Panana, would provoke her, that is Hannah, so she wept and would not eat. The provoking of Panana was heightened even more at this religious festival because one of the primary reasons... Why barrenness was such a great reproach is because every Hebrew woman prayed that the Lord's Messiah would come from her lineage. And we see this is clearly on Hannah's mind when we get to chapter 2 and verse 10. Well, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, we see a prayer in God's presence. As soon as the sacrificial meal was over... Hannah rushed away to the tabernacle, here referred to as the temple. She is bitter of soul and is oblivious to the peering eyes of Eli, the high priest. Verse 10 tells us, she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. The Bible tells us that sometimes even tears constitute prayer because Psalm six eight says, The Lord even hears the voice of our weeping. There was nowhere else for her to turn. She had to find solace from Penanah's cruel mockery. She found no comfort at all in Elkanah's well-meant but inadequate sympathy of verse 8. So she turned to Yahweh of hosts. She turned to... The God whose universal rule encompasses every force and army, whether earthly, cosmic, or heavenly. She knew she could trust the one who rules the entire universe, the absolutely omnipotent one. And her petition in verse 11 is really quite amazing. Look at it with me. O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. What an amazing thing that this woman believes in her heart that the great Lord of hosts would hear her prayer from the hill country of Ephraim and would answer her request. This is one of the most profound issues of Christian theology. Does God care for us as individuals? Does the God who created and sustains this universe care about measly human beings? Hannah believes she does, and she is right. God will hear and answer her prayer. Oh, but Eli has a totally different perspective on this. Hannah is praying with all her heart. She is in intense anguish, and her her lips are moving, but she's not making any sounds. What does he assume? Another soused woman in the house of the Lord. His sharp rebuke is met with this defense in verse 15. Know, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. We need to learn something here about prayer from Hannah. We can cast all our cares on the Lord because he cares about us. When we are... Heavy of heart, when we are burdened with grief, when we are oppressed to the deepest core of our being, we can call out to the Lord and He will answer our prayer. This is what the psalmist declared in Psalm 142. I pour out my complaint before Him, I tell my trouble. To him, I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Well, Eli finally figures out she's not drunk. His accusation turns into a blessing. And he says in verse 17, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. Having left her petition and her heart before the Lord, she is now able to walk away and no longer to be filled with sadness. Thirdly, we see a presentation to God's priest. Look with me at verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Verse 20, And it came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. The name Samuel means, heard of God. This is the amazing thing about this account, and perhaps the greatest point of application for us. God hears and answers our prayers. Of course, he doesn't always answer them the way we want, but he cares about us as individuals, and he always answers us when we pray to him. Now, Hannah was a woman of integrity. And chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, describe how she fulfilled her vow to God. She had promised to give him to the Lord, that is, for service in his sanctuary. And as soon as he is weaned, she takes him to Eli along with an offering from the Lord. Samuel is perhaps three years old at this point. And we should pay special attention to Hannah's words in verses 27 and 28 as she presents little Samuel to Eli. Four times in these two verses, she uses the Hebrew root for to ask. Now, it doesn't come out this way in most English translations, but a literal translation would read like this. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him, and I also have given back what was asked to Yahweh all the days he lives is one that is asked for Yahweh. Four times the word ask is used. And this picks up on Eli's blessing in verse 17, may the God of Israel give you the asking, literally, which you have asked from him. Samuel is the embodiment of answered prayer. So Hannah dedicates him to the Lord for life. She turns him over to the Lord to serve him all the days of his life. Now, whether Hannah realizes it or not, this is one of the most significant points in the history of God's people. Samuel is destined to become God's prophet who will guide his people through one of the most critical epics in the history of the nation. And he's going to be used of God as a chosen instrument in accomplishing God's redemptive purposes. And it is because of this that we can't take everything in this passage as normative for Christians today. Dale Davis says, in one sense, Samuel and Hannah and Eli do not stand on the same level as all believers do. That's another way of saying it's not normative for all believers today. And yet, we do share some common ground. For example, any parent who is living in covenant with the Lord should find themselves following Hannah in general principle, even if if not in precise practice. We should, as parents, solemnly and passionately desire that our children be given over to the Lord in the sense that they serve their, uh, they live their lives serving God. We should also recognize our children as gifts from the Lord and be willing to give them back to God. The stage is now set. Samuel is in the sanctuary of God, ready to grow up into the man God intends for him to be. As a reward for her faithfulness in keeping this vow to God, Hannah's womb is opened, and chapter 11 tells us she bore six children in all, In all, but Hannah is not finished praying. So we need to see one last prayer here, which is really the central element of this first section. So we move, fourthly, to a preview of God's kingdom, a preview of God's kingdom. In Shiloh, Hannah prays a prayer of thanksgiving and prays to God for his great gift. This is one of the greatest prayers in all the Word of God. Some refer to it as a song, others as a prayer, and you could see it either way. But we learn much from this about the character and nature of God. And I want us to walk our way through this song of praise before we look at its significance. This song or prayer can be divided into three sections. The first section, verses 1 through 3, expresses Hannah's joy over the relief God has granted to her in sending this son. Look at it with me. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The personal pronouns here show that Hannah begins with her own personal experience. Verse 2 is a confession of faith that gives basis for the admonition of verse 3. This is not directed specifically to panana, because the first two Hebrew verbs are plural, as is the pronoun your. So this is a general warning to all self-sufficient boasters. Anyone who would talk high and mighty should be careful about such arrogance because God knows all and He will intervene on behalf of His own. And notice that Hannah gives praise to God here for salvation, but this is not the way we use the word salvation today, referring to the gift of eternal life. We might call this micro-salvation. It is salvation from her barrenness, and salvation from the crisis she had experienced. And by the way, when it says in verse 1 that Hannah prayed and said, the Chaldee uh, has it, and Hannah prayed in the spirit of prophecy. This entire prayer has been referred to by theologians as oracular declaration. And as we will see, this is a prophetic prayer that predicts the coming of the kingdom of Messiah. But this first part has to do with her own personal experience with God. The word rock in verse 2 literally means fountain, source, or spring. There is no source of salvation like our God. In verse 3, he's referred to as a God of knowledge. He is most wise, all-knowing. This points to the omniscience of God. And this is one of the main reasons why we can always trust in Him. The second section of this song is found in verses 4 through 8. And here, Hannah expounds on the matter. The way Yahweh delivered her is the very same way He rules... His world. Look, look at it with me. Verse 4. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full, high, full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languish, languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And he set the world on them. Now, as you can imagine, I could go a long time on that. But here, Hannah moves from the particular to the general. What God has done for Hannah simply reflects the tendency of his ways. In other words, this is what God is like, and this is what we can expect from him. When John Calvin had suffered the death of his wife, Idolette, he wrote to his friend, William Farrell, and he said this, May the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction, which would certainly have overcome me had not he who raises up the prostrate, strengthens the weak, and refreshes the weary, stretched forth his hand from heaven to me. Calvin was expressing the same thing Hannah did here. She, in essence, was saying, I was at the edge of the cliff, ready to fall to my death when the Lord lifted me up. It is God who exalts the fallen and the oppressed. When I was barren, He made me fruitful. When I was poor, He made me rich. But that is not really surprising because that's the way He is. This is the kind of God I serve. And by the way, the things that are being described here in verses 4 through 8, are all things that come under the realm of His divine providence. For example, as implied in verse 8, there have been many times in the course of God's providence where a person has been taken from a very low place and elevated to a high position. The Lord is even the arbiter of life and death. He is the one who gives life to begin with, and He is the one who... Determines when it will end. The word sheol in verse 6, which is often translated grave in the English, probably has the same meaning simply of the abode of the dead. The word originally meant the covered place. And the concept in verse 8 of the pillars of the earth where the Lord set the world probably points to the fact that God upholds all things by the word of his power he is not only the one who created all things but the one who holds all things together well in verses nine and ten things broaden out even further in this third section of the song this is where the prophetic aspect really comes into play we have moved from Hannah's own experience to the way in which God rules invisibly by his providence. And now we see what it will be like when one day he will rule visibly on the earth. Another way to describe the progression of the song, uh, this song of praise is to say that it moves from micro-salvation ultimately to macro-salvation salvation look at verses 9 and 10 with me he keeps the feet of his godly ones but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail those who contend with the lord will be shattered against them he will thunder in the heavens the lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed This describes the grand finale, the final act of God's redemptive plan. McGee says this verse, verse 10, is one of the greatest verses of Scripture, and the first one to name the Messiah, the word anointed in the Hebrew is the word Messiah, which is translated Christos in the Greek, and that comes to us as Christ in English. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hannah's inspired hymn or prayer of praise gives us a prophetic glimpse into the future. When Israel will be ruled by a victorious king who will judge the earth with perfect righteousness. Messiah will come and he will deliver his covenant people while at the same time destroying his enemy. Listen, we have to catch Hannah's logic here. I know we've gone a little long today, but please listen carefully. Too many people read these opening chapters of this book and respond by saying something like, Oh, that's nice. Hannah has a son. Or people might think something like, Good for Hannah, the other woman who had kids running around everywhere, has had to eat crow. I'm glad things have calmed down a bit for old Elkanah there in Ramathame, Zophim, wherever that is. But wait a minute. There's much more here. This is no piddly affair, as Dale Davis put it. This is a picture of God himself. It is a description not only of how he rules the universe now, but how he will bring in the eternal kingdom in the future. (coughs) Davis writes, The saving help Yahweh gave Hannah is a foretaste, a scale model demonstration of how Yahweh will do it when he does it in grand style." This is a significant point that each and every one of us needs to seriously consider. Every time God lifts your feet from the miry clay, every time he raises you up from the pit of despair, this is a sample of the ultimate macro salvation that we will one day experience. Tiny salvations are a sign or shadow of god's final and ultimate salvation and of course we should always praise god for those macro salvation experiences but we must always keep in mind his macro salvation a young john calvin was forced to leave his native home of france and was traveling eastward hoping to reach Strasbourg, or maybe even Basel. He was looking for a safe haven where he could study and write in support of the new Protestant faith. He couldn't go in a straight line to Strasbourg because there was a war going on. The year was 1536, and Francis I and Emperor Charles V were engaged in their third war with cannons, carts, and equipment clogging all the roads. So Calvin was forced to detour to the south and was unable to reach Lausanne as he had hoped. So he ended up spending the night in Geneva. But there in Geneva was a short, stocky, fiery man named William Farrell, who heard Calvin was there. Farrell went, to where the young scholar was staying, and he threatened him with the judgment of God if he did not stay in Geneva and help carry out the Reformation. Well, the rest is history. Calvin did indeed stay in Geneva, and from there he lit the fire that blazed into an inferno that could not be stopped. But we have to ask some very interesting theological questions here. Could we say that we owe Calvin's impact on the Reformation to Francis and Charles? After all, it was their war, humanly speaking, that forced Calvin to go to Geneva. We probably wouldn't argue for that. But we must acknowledge that the providence of God was at work there. But getting back to 1 Samuel, can we say we owe the Reformation that took place under Samuel's leadership to Panana? That almost seems like a perverse way of looking at that. But God's providence was involved, and she, in fact, was a factor that led to all this. Without Panana's goading, mockery, and malice? Would Hannah ever have been driven to make a vow to God that ended with Samuel being raised by God's high priest? Probably not. Humanly speaking, what's the point? That God can use even negative things to accomplish His purposes. That even severe trials can ultimately lead to His best. Do we owe it all to Panana? Of course not. We owe it all to God. But God uses a variety of means, and he is not limited to only good things. He even uses evil at times to accomplish his will. David says we owe it to the God who takes even the smirks and digs and venom of Panana's and uses them to fill a cradle with another kingdom servant. The kingdom's purpose for Samuel goes way beyond the matter of a barren woman. It lays out for us the modus operandi of God himself. We can always trust him and his providence. He is always accomplishing his own good purposes even when bad things come into our lives. Hannah fully trusted him. Are we? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you'll help us to understand the significance of this passage, that we would respond to it as you would want us to. And Lord, we pray that we would be people who are fully trusting in you and your providence, that we would be a people of prayer, a people who... Uh, believe that when we pray that you care and that you hear and help us to learn these lessons this morning in jesus name amen